millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And the topic I'm going to talk about today is something that I have a kind of an abiding fascination for. Uh, and it is a continuation of the podcast I did a couple of weeks ago on um, everyday life in Stalin's Russia. And also the um, views that many ordinary Soviet citizens had of the future and this idea of uh, utopianism that seems to have existed uh, alongside uh, periods of famine and uh, intense political violence. Um, once again, we're looking at Sheila Fitzpatrick's Everyday Stalinism. If you do get a chance to read it, it's uh, an enormously important book uh, and one which uh, will dramatically change your, your views of uh, Stalinist Russia. And she's um, one of the, the, the foremost scholars on the subject and also the idea of Stalinism and the everyday so, she writes, The generation that grew up in the 1930s um, <clears throat> took the words, We shall build our world a new world, from the International, the uh, Russian national anthem, um, to heart. Most memoirs about the period, including many written in emigration, recall the idealism and optimism of the young, their belief that they were participants in a historic process of transformation, their enthusiasm for what was called the building of socialism, the sense of adventure they brought to it, and their willingness, at least rhetorical, to go off as pioneers to distant construction sites like Magnitogorsk or Komolsomolsk in the Amur. Terry was not part of this picture. So, it's very easy when studying Soviet Russia, for example, at a, an earlier age in GCSE or A-level or whatever the equivalent qualification is wherever you're listening in the world, to assume that Soviet citizens existed in blind terror most of the time. Um, the same can be um, misleadingly assumed of Nazism as well. These were states with secret policemen and dictators, and surely everybody had these thoughts and feelings. They must have been terrified of the government. Well, 
there was there were of course widespread anxieties and fears and during um, periods of terror in the Soviet Union um, life was highly unpredictable uh, during periods of terror in fact many Soviet citizens justified the terror and said well you know they must have done something and the state doesn't make mistakes they they are looking for troublemakers and it must be those people but also as described here a generation of young people engaged with the Stalinist project, engaged with the five-year plans, believed it was their duty to engage in, involve themselves in this process of historical construction. Um, and part of that is because of the very nature of Marxist-Leninism. So as far as sort of Marxist-Leninist doctrine goes, communism, the utopia, is somewhere in the future. What the phase of uh, socialism in the Soviet Union was meant to be it was perhaps not necessarily nice or comfortable um, because it's building towards um, this future world. And it's actually quite an attractive proposition to be part of this process. There have been people um, throughout history who have believed themselves to be uh, pioneers or creators of a new world or creators of or recreators of an old world um, and they shape their lives, their sense of selves, their identity, uh, social and individual uh, around this task. Um, so it's, it's not uncommon. Um, the son-in-law of Nikita Khrushchev, um, who was the editor of Izvetsia, um, was a schoolboy in 1937. Um, he writes, interestingly, the only thing that existed for that year was Spain, the fight with the fascists. Spanish claps, Spanish caps, I beg your pardon, blue with red edging along the visor, came into fashion. Also, big berets, which tilted at a rakish angle for boys and girls at that time. The world divided only into whites and reds. It didn't even come into our heads to think which side we should be on. It was the red world. Um, in which the polar explorers, Chelyuskinites, who were uh, rescuers of a team stranded in the Arctic in 1934, and Papaninites, um, named after Ivan Papanin's record-breaking aviation team, lived and accomplished their heroic feats. It's a fascinating extract. What um, the reference to Spain, of course, is the Spanish Civil War, in which the Soviet Union had participated um, and had supported the Republic um, against the uh, Spanish generals who were supported by Hitler and Mussolini. And it merges, that struggle merges with the process of modernization in the imagination of young Soviet citizens. Um, it was a struggle in the eyes of young Soviet citizens between modernity which seemed to be represented in popular discourse in the Soviet Union by polar explorers and aviators. There is a fascination with both. Uh, they both represent something heroic and exciting, but something kind of modern but and also egalitarian, because in the new world of the Soviet Union, anyone could be an aviator and anyone could be a polar explorer. The um, juxtaposition of this is the kind of medieval barbarity of the Spanish generals who wished to restore 
a Catholic uh, Spain, a fascist Catholic Spain, um, that would uh, essentially uh, drag the peasantry back into uh, the Middle Ages. This was how this was the the kind of uh, the Manichaean struggle, the binary struggle between lightness and darkness that the um, uh, young Soviet uh, pioneers uh, perceived. Um, the other diarist that's mentioned here is um, one of Ajube's um, contemporaries, uh, Raisa Orlova, um, who later became um, a dissident and emigrated in the post-Stalin period. She said of her youth, I had an unshakable faith that my existence between these old walls in an apartment on Gorky Street was merely a preparation for life. Life, properly speaking, would begin in a new and sparkling white house. There I would do exercises in the morning. There I would order and exist. There all my heroic achievements would commence. The majority of my contemporaries shared the same kind of rough, provisional, slapdash way of life. Faster, faster towards the great goal, and there everything would begin in a genuine sense. It was, a, it was both possible and necessary to alter everything, the streets, the houses, the cities, the social order, human souls, and it was not all that difficult. The first unselfish enthusiasts, enthusiasts would outline the plan on paper, then they would tear down the old, saying all the while, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. Then the ground would be cleared and the rubble and the edifice of the socialist phalanx would be erected in the space that had been cleared. So, for example, the, what she speaks of is actually what happens in, in Moscow. Um, Moscow, the, essentially the old medieval Tsarist Moscow is swept away and a 20th century uh, stone and concrete city is uh, erected in its place. Streets are widened. Entire boulevards are uh, are moved, um, and uh, the uh, old buildings of the old medieval world are knocked down to make place for kind of concrete palaces of of, of modernity. It's interesting that Raisa Orlova talks about this idea of her future. You know, this idea of things happening in the future, of going from um, uh, existence between these old walls to a sparkling new white house. It's almost a kind of a metaphor, it's a, perhaps kind of in her unconscious mind, is metaphor for the advancement of modernity, the kind of the creation of, of the future itself. The uh, general plan for the reconstruction of Moscow um, that was meant to set a plan for, a pattern for urban planning throughout the Soviet Union um, created um, a, a sort of like a, a picture of kind of modernistic advance um, for citizens to be kind of wowed by and for also particularly for foreign visitors and I talked a lot in this podcast about the, the fellow traveller movement the likes of the Webbs, um, George Bernard Shaw um, the uh, various American French fellow travellers who came to look at the extraordinary advances being made in the Soviet Union while their own countries were in languishing in economic doldrums. Um, the plans and blueprints and models um, seemed to be in every public building, in every public space. There were um, films 
um, about the uh, creation of new cities, um, the film uh, Chabada uh, by the Georgian filmmaker Mikhail Chirelli um, showed uh, models of a kind of almost a Fritz Lang sort of future city um, where there was a kind of a commentary talking through where schools and hospitals and buildings uh, would be. One of the great projects of modernity in Moscow in uh, the early 1930s was the creation of the Moscow Metro. Um, the Moscow Metro, if you've ever been on it, is an extraordinary piece of architecture. Um, one of the truly beautiful public spaces. Beautiful, because one of the uh, intentions of the Stalinists was to take the grandeur of royal palaces and put it in a public space so that people could enjoy um, artwork and um, chandeliers uh, in uh, a democratised space. Democratised in the loosest sense of the word, but democratised as um, kind of aesthetics brought from behind palace walls out into the public. The idea, of course, was to create public spaces that people would want to spend time in. The Soviet regime was very suspicious of private spaces. They thought private spaces was a rejection of collectivist values, and also private spaces are where one can be conspiratorial. Nobody knows quite what is going on uh, behind closed doors. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, the um, deep escalators and spacious stations on the um, metro were uh, uh, astonishing to citizens who'd never seen this sort of thing before. And um, very, very popular with them. There in uh, Moscow, um, architecture was by its very nature kind of grand. It was uh, monumentalist. Um, the, the kind of Stalinist architecture. Created buildings as grand as the, uh, the Moscow Hotel. With 1,200 rooms um, that was to be built um, close to Red Square. Um, 
the palace was a uh, an, a concept um, which kind of was captured the age. It was these kind of democratic people's sort of palaces. These were um, huge buildings that would be kind of um, for culture, for sport, for mass entertainment, for film, um, and they were um, often referred to as palaces of labour. They um, had a, a kind, a, a very um, brutalist and yet merged with classicist architecture um, that seemed to be um, a way of announcing to the Soviet populace that all architectural styles were now combined within um, socialist, uh, Stalinist architecture. And that was a way of saying that all the architecture of the past um, had been working towards this one historical moment when uh, a kind of a new aesthetic was was to begin. The the modernists, um, such as Tatlin, who had been um, uh, in favour very, very briefly uh, during the early Leninist era, uh, were quickly got rid of under Stalin, um, and their uh, rather <coughs> daring ideas uh, about architecture were swept away for kind of more formal conservatism. Um, the planned um, palace of the Soviets that never got built in the end was part of Moscow's general plan. Um, it was on the site of the Christ the Saviour Cathedral, which was demolished in the early 1930s. Um, the palace never got built because of its vast size. It was going to be a simply enormous building with a huge statue of Lenin on the top. Um, there was um, too much groundwater, uh, and the weight would have sunk into the earth. And obviously, uh, Orthodox Russian Christians believe that this was kind of God's punishment for destroying his cathedral. Um, but the image was, uh, even though it didn't get built, the image kind of continues as, as one of... Soviet Russia, many Soviet citizens have been forgiven for thinking it actually existed. Um, it appeared on propaganda posters um, and in the film uh, by Alexandra Medvedkins, um, who uh, filmed the movie New Moscow in 1939, which uh, saw the Palace of the Soviets, a kind of a, uh, a, a graphic of it imposed uh, on street scenes. Um, which was a kind of one of the kind of the great moments, great imaginary moments of socialist realist cinema. Streets were riding, particularly the famous Gorky Street, um, and the old medieval facades of houses were got rid of. A kind of a uniformity was created uh, in the style of Stalinist architecture that for, on in on four street fronts. Um, and it was vastly labour-intensive. Um, gulag labour was uh, used to clear the streets along with uh, free workers. Um, when the streets were widened, entire buildings were moved metres backwards. Quite how, I'm not sure, one would have to ask an architect or an engineer, but certainly that's, that, that's what occurred. The problem with all of this is that much of it was a facade. It was impossible to simply construct a new Soviet Union. It was impossible to simply build the future 
with uh, many of the old values of uh, cultural and economic backwardness and corruption not uh, still existing uh, behind. And there was uh, much thought amongst the, the Stalinists as to what could be done, how society could be jolted into the future um, and Soviet citizens forced to kind of conform to some sort of um, standard. Policies were, were introduced um, such as the, the policy of kulturnost or culturedness which um, uh, punished workers for um, laziness, for absenteeism, for uh, drinking, um, for swearing and generally being um, the kind of backward peasant type that Russia was trying to, to move away from. But ultimately, much of old Russia um, sustains itself. Um, the, uh, Lenin said that socialism cannot be willed in one country so long as that terrible centuries-old gulf still separates the small part of it that is industrialised and civilised from the part that is uncivilised, patriarchal and oppressed for centuries through slavery and colonial exploitation. So the, um, the, the, kind of the old values of the past had made a particular kind of person in Lenin's view. So during the 1930s, uh, dramatic changes take place, as we know. By the end of the 20s, one-fifth or under a fifth of the population was urban. That figure would rise to a third by the end of the 1930s. So um, the complete total number of wage and salary-earning workers um, in the late 20s to 11 million, uh, out of a population of 150 million. And this figure would triple in a decade. So this is the story of massive, massive urbanisation. Um... 11 million was also the figure for children in school in the late 20s, of whom 3 million were in secondary schools. A decade later, there was 30 million, 30 million children in schools, 18 million of them in secondary schools. Um, only 57% of, of all Soviet people aged 9 to 49 were literate in 1926, although, um, that said, illiteracy was concentrated in the rural parts of Russia and in Central Asia. Um, but the urban population uh, was 81% literate. By 1939, 81% of the entire Soviet population was literate. So there were some extraordinary achievements uh, under the uh, Soviet regime in terms of literacy, in terms of urbanisation. Of course, we've talked in the past that this massive, massive rapid transition towards urbanisation caused huge economic hardship. But there were these kinds of achievements um, were the, the things that the regime focused on and the, thing, the evidence that young Soviet citizens had that things were dramatically improving. And it's a small wonder that you get a generation of pioneers, a generation of optimists, a generation of people who believe that the journey into the future is untrammeled because of their experience of leaping from um, illiterate peasant living standards um, to um, urbanised, educated life within uh, one generation. Of they have suddenly, dramatically, large numbers of them become modern people. Achievement was accompanied by uh, exaggeration and uh, bragging, um, partly because of the, the nature of Stalinism, the uh, party bosses uh, across the country 
would uh, brag and exaggerate their own achievements uh, in order to uh, advance their careers and stay out of trouble. Statistical books um, were published uh, and they were often published in foreign languages for the likes of people like the Fabians to, to read and be misled by. Um, the data uh, on things that weren't working was excluded from these, obviously. And the Soviet press constantly boasted about hydroelectric projects and agricultural projects and blast furnaces and modern technology uh, changing uh, the nature of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, impressive achievements by aviators, again, this is the subject of great fascination in the Soviet Union, um, and polar explorers who survived um, the hazards of the Arctic um, were uh, also um, uh, championed. And the other thing that is constantly mentioned are um, changes in the living standards of women, the emancipation of women from the um, uh, traditional ways of, of Russian peasant misogyny and patriarchy, um, the increase in literacy, um, and the numbers of kindergartens that were liberating women to go to work. And the thing that we'll look at in the not-too-distant future is this fascination with work and almost this obsession with work, this idea that going to work makes you modern and going to work makes you a contributor to society and therefore a Soviet citizen, part of the building of socialist modernity. OK, well, we're going to leave it there because otherwise we start to kind of go into um, something else. But um, the part of all of this that's, that's perhaps worth remembering uh, in terms of, of propaganda was that there was a, uh, a belief in being able within a generation to overtake the West, that socialism would prove that it was uh, more able than Western capitalism to provide ever higher living standards um, if it wasn't kind of uh, encircled by hostile capitalist powers. And within the midst of this um, modernity, within the midst of this advance, within the midst of this uh, growth in living standards, uh, there was the uh, belief not entirely uh, unjustified by um, Soviet, the Soviet state and by Soviet people that also Soviet Russia must arm itself to defend the revolution and to defend these advances for ordinary people whom, if the Soviet Union was invaded, would be dragged back into serfdom. And in many ways, considering the invasion that does come in 1941, that's quite prescient and um, quite prophetic. So thanks very much for listening. It's been uh, great to chat with you about this this morning and um, I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best. Thanks. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com.
Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.